So I think everyone needs to, at the very least, you know, check their biases, take a pause, don't share anything until they've checked it out, and to look for the signs of, of credibility and to, you know, be willing to admit if they shared something incorrect to go back and take it down and, and send something out to their friends and family that says, I made a mistake, I shared something that wasn't right, and here's what I learned from it. This week's guest is here to help us figure out what's real and what's fake online. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Fake news. We've been talking about it quite a lot recently since the election on the podcast. One of the solutions has come up a number of times is improving media literacy. Joining me on Skype today is Peter Adams, Senior Vice President for Education Programs at the News Literacy Project. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. So first off, what are we talking about when we refer to news literacy? So news literacy is kind of a, a subset of media literacy that is really focused on helping young people, especially, navigate today's information landscape. So to know what's credible, to understand what kinds of misinformation or tricky information is out there so that students can figure out you know, what to believe, what to base their decisions on, and, and obviously what information they can act on. Okay. And why is it so important that we have this literacy? So, I mean, I think, you know, consuming and creating and engaging with information today is a much more common action than ever before. Everybody's encountering and consuming more information than ever before. And it is the most foundational civic action anyone can take. So, you know, without understanding what you can trust, we're limited to our lived experiences and the things that we can witness, which is really, you know, disempowering and isolating. So for citizens to engage in the national conversation, to evaluate personal opportunities, to understand what beliefs they should hold, and, and to evaluate what social issues and civic issues are most important, it all starts with information. Okay. Well, um, the name of your organization, the News Literacy Project, I mean, it's, it seems fairly self-explanatory, but could you sort of talk about the organization's mission? Sure. You know, we really seek to help educators teach students how to, you know, effectively make their way through today's information ecosystem, how to uh, understand the dynamics of that ecosystem, who's creating different kinds of information, where the pitfalls are, and also where the opportunities are. I mean, it's not all bad news, obviously. Today's Technologies offer students more voice, more access to more audiences than ever before. They have some exciting creation tools. So we try to help educators with that as well. So, I mean, you know, mass media um, news has been around for a pretty long time. Uh, what is what's so concerning about the, the current environment? I think there are just so many more sources of information, which, uh, you know, as I just mentioned, is there's an exciting side to that. The downside is it becomes very, very hard for people to understand what they're looking at unless it's from a source that they're already familiar with. But there are so many sources of information, so many people creating so many types of information, and so many of them are citizens or individuals that it's really difficult even for professional journalists to understand what they're looking at when they encounter it. So it's not so much that, uh, you know, I mean, journalism's changing in some, some interesting ways, some good, some challenging. But I think the big challenge for consumers is just the, the volume of information, you know, that they're encountering. And for example, there are about a billion Facebook updates posted every day. And even if you were to just try to take a glance at those billion posts, 
you'd be at it for 32 years nonstop for one day's worth of Facebook posts. So that doesn't include the, you know, I think the 72 hours of YouTube videos that are uploaded something like every minute. It's just a, a, a staggering amount of information that's being produced and in an environment that's more complex than ever before. So that's the urgency. So it seems like a pretty massive challenge then. And so what is it that your organization is trying to do? You, you say you want to educate, you know, young people. I mean, how young are we talking about and, and how are you educating them? Yeah, that's a good question. Historically, the News Literacy Project has worked with secondary school students, so middle school and high school students through educators. So we usually partner with an educator. And our original model was to do in-class programs in, in our three cities, New York, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. We also did a little work in Houston, Texas. And we got much more demand for news literacy resources and services than we could meet. So we, we had to scale digitally or virtually. So our new effort is a web-based e-learning platform called the Checkology Virtual Classroom that lives at checkology.org. And teachers can go there and register and get access to 12 core news literacy e-learning experiences. And we are a small team. We have a, a limited capacity as an organization. So we built one collection of lessons and we just are listening and watching and talking to the educators who are using these tools to figure out how they're adapting them what works well for them, what we could make work better, and what they need. And we've seen those lessons used with students as young as fifth and sixth grade and all the way up through freshman and sophomore year of college. So we are just sort of watching where the demand is, watching how these current tools are being used, and trying to raise the funds to add to those, both in terms of levels and lexiles, but also additional lessons that teachers would like to, to have resources to teach. Yeah, recently I um I had a chance to speak to um some uh, college educators and uh I think this sort of came up, you know, what are the new students, you know, what is their literacy um their mm -hmm. news literacy quotient at where are they at? And you know, the, the response I got back was is that they they're really sort of lacking in an understanding of of the way that the current media delivery system is working and and how to recognize, you know, fake news, how to recognize things. Yeah that are coming at them from lots of different angles, not necessarily political per se, but maybe even just advertorial, you know, somebody's trying to, to convince you to, to purchase something or, or think right. better of something because, you know, this is going to make your, your life better. It's just trying to create that judgment in people. So in the classroom, what is it, you know, what is it the teachers are experiencing that, uh, you know, gets them to, to, to want to bring this type of service into the classroom? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a pre-existing demand. I mean, it's not a hard sell. I think teachers understand um, that this is a skill that they need to address, uh, and they're they're trying themselves to understand um, the dynamics that that uh, they see in the in the information landscape around them. Um, and I think it's challenging for an educator to keep up with all the the, the trends in branded content and in viral rumors and you know in fake news, that one particular kind of misinformation that's getting so much attention right now. And to try to understand that and then to take advantage of teachable moments and, and examples of these kinds of things as they occur with their students, that's a tall order to add to everything else, you know, classroom teachers are doing. And so, you know, that's where I think we come in with, with resources that can kind of guide teachers to the core competencies and skills, but also to provide them with the authentic examples 
from across the information landscape. So not just not just news, but rumors and examples of unverified information, raw videos dropped on YouTube that turn out to be a PSA or turn out to be an advertisement. So we really help them by providing that and, and giving them a sort of course they can improvise on, they can adapt and implement with their students, which is what which is what classroom teachers all over the country do so well. We're talking up to this point really about um, students because, you know, obviously that's the focus of your program. But for the average news consumer, I mean, what are what are the, some of the best practices that they could like implement in the way that they consume their news? I think, you know, first and foremost, people have to be aware that not just purveyors of misinformation, but partisans and pundits seek to exploit our cognitive biases. So we all have a, a habit of leaning into information that we want to believe and leaning away from or working to dismiss information that is that is inconvenient or incompatible with our existing beliefs. So that's human nature. It's easier to to have your beliefs affirmed or to try to fit new information into your existing beliefs rather than reorganize those beliefs or revise those beliefs in some way. And advertisers and pundits and hoaxers and purveyors of misinformation seek to exploit that. So, you know, they want you to have a strong emotional reaction to something, both to get the click, to get the revenue often, but also to sort of override your sense of reason. So your gut and your heart take over and then your head kind of comes behind and helps you make up reasons why you're feeling the right way. So the first step I think anyone can do is to be aware of when they're having an emotional reaction, to be aware of their own biases. When they want something to be true, that's a time to sort of stop and say, okay, as much as I would like this to be true, it might be a little too good to be true. Let me look into this. So they can then ask us, you know, some core questions, you know, who created this from what organization does that organization have standards? So do they aspire to a set of standards that are, that are designed to, to help ensure credibility and accuracy? Do they correct mistakes? Do they take actions when they make mistakes? Do they explain their mistakes? That's something I think news organizations could do a little bit better job of, even though you know, newsrooms are shrinking. You know, when they make a mistake, they cannot just correct it. They could explain how it happened. That really helps consumers understand and then finally, I think consumers can follow folks who report on media. They can uh, pay attention to developments uh, in the media world. They can take a look at the people who, who study viral rumors, who fact check them, and just sort of keep up with some of the latest strategies so they can, they can recognize the red flags when they encounter them. So, I mean, you mentioned, you know, newsrooms in there and a journalist. And, and one of the things you, the, I think is maybe the overall all message that you want to get out is the idea of cultivating skepticism in people about uh, the information they get and where they're in questioning where it comes from. You gave a couple of examples of what newsrooms and journalists can do. Is there anything else, you know, we can do to sort of, you know, <laughs> police their own house to make right. sure that they're not sharing misinformation? As I said, first and foremost, to check your emotions and your biases. So if you're having a strong emotional reaction, if you really want something to be true, or you're really doing a lot of cognitive work to dismiss something that you don't want to be true, just pause and take a breath. Don't share anything that you haven't clicked on and read and checked out. Sharing is effectively republishing. Even if you say retweets aren't endorsements, you know, there are still stakes there to amplifying something that could be misleading. So really think about misinformation the same way we do pollution, for example. So it, it pollutes the national conversation. It presents a real challenge for a democracy 
if we can't agree on at least a foundational set of facts and demonstrable truths around which to disagree and debate and to have a dialogue. So I think everyone needs to, at the very least, you know, check their biases, take a pause, don't share anything until they've checked it out, and to look for the signs of, of credibility and to you know, be willing to admit if they shared something incorrect, to go back and take it down and, and send something out to their friends and family that says, I made a mistake, I shared something that wasn't right, and here's what I learned from it. Yeah, and that's something that I think journalists don't always think about. That we're we are, you know, in the broadcasting business, we're we're broadcasting out news and, and reporting on things that we we've, we've gone out there and written, and you know, we have our sources and everything. But there's a lot of, you know, due diligence that we have to do as part of our job. You know, part of it is being transparent, showing our process. You know, who did we interview? Who are our sources? Yeah. Things like that. And also, you know, you, you mentioned retweets. I mean, there, there are a lot of journalists who, who do exactly what you, you said is, oh, a retweet is not an endorsement. But it, you are sharing that information. And so, yeah. you know, you have to put the effort in to, if you're going to share something, make it make sure it's something you, you know, you, you've checked out, that you believe in, that, that you're comfortable. You know, the way I always think of it is, am I comfortable in saying this? If I'm just sharing out everything that sort of supports whatever my argument is or whatever I like without any sort of investment. Right. Eventually that reflects back on me. It um, does. That's why it's so important for journalists to be transparent about this and to be mindful of how they deal with social media. Yeah. Civility is a really important part of that, I think, as well. And I think that digital media has a way of giving us enough distance to do and say things and treat people in, in ways that we never would face to face. And I think Hopefully a lot of people have had the same experience or seen things, but I've, I've had experiences where, you know, you're disagreeing with someone online and it's much more, it seems much more charged than it should be. And then you meet that person face to face and you can come to some kind of understanding. So I think part of the civility problem is everybody just adjusting to all the new ways we have to communicate with each other and to remember that there's a person behind the most of the time, there's a person behind the handle. Bot, bots are an issue, but, but you know, for friends and family and people that, that are friends of friends on Facebook who you might be discussing something with, to be respectful and listen and to remember that, that you can have a dialogue that's civil. I think that's something people really need to remember. You mentioned something else, which is that you know, when people share something or when they see information, they like to believe that they evaluate the source of the information and that that is more important to them in their decision to believe it or not than the person who shared it. But a recent American Press Institute study suggested just the opposite, that actually the person who shared it has a big effect on whether or not the people they shared it with believe it. And I think that's something that's important for everyone to remember before they share. You know, your, your friends and your family are going to see that coming from you and that is going to increase the credibility of the information you share, regardless of where it's from or what it looks like in their minds. So that, uh, you know, it's really your personal reputation that's at stake. Yeah, that, that's something that, you know, that, that people don't always think of. But is, I mean, you're endorsing something, whatever you, whatever you send out. And, and I want to touch on a couple of things that you, you mentioned, one of which is sort of the negative behavior. Part of, I, I would imagine... Uh, the program that you're you're dealing with in your educational system or talking to educators is the around anonymity on the web and sort of trollish behavior. Um, right. Is that something that you're addressing? A little bit. So digital citizenship is kind of a borderland of news literacy. 
along with some other areas like information literacy, for example, and civic literacy and civic engagement, I, I consider a kind of a borderland. So there are overlap points between those two fields. And when and where that overlap takes place, I think we try to address it. But we also recognize that there are folks like Common Sense Media who have developed really great resources for educators around digital citizenship and civility. Facing History and Ourselves is another fantastic education nonprofit organization that works with teachers around dealing with controversy in the classroom in a respectful way, looking at, uh, you know, helping teachers structure conversations in which students are going to be disagreeing, but do so respectfully. Common Sense has a lot of stuff about digital citizenship and, and behavior online and student privacy and, and the rest. So we are happy to leave that work to them and who do it so well and to collaborate where it makes sense. One of the things you mentioned in there was bots. And that's a word I hear a lot in lots of different contexts. But yeah. how does it how does it sort of figure into what you're doing? Well, I think it's important for people to understand that bots and botnets exist. So, you know, computers that are basically automatically running a number, sometimes a large number of social media accounts, basically designed to amplify a message. So to automatically like everything that a certain set of users on Twitter, for example, might post. So it exaggerates the amount of consensus and agreement and support that certain ideas get. But also, trickily enough, it's designed to kind of game the algorithms that trend hashtags. So on Facebook, you know, when something starts to trend, the algorithm picks up on it and kind of promotes it to everyone's feed. And in Twitter, this is especially true that you can see trending hashtags on a kind of left sidebar on the platform. And so people have developed whole hosts of fake social media accounts to game what trends and what gets noticed and picked up and promoted by, by algorithms. And, you know, people who, who are interested in, in making themselves look like more of an influencer than they are can actually buy followers on some shady websites quite cheaply. You can buy thousands of Twitter followers for not much money. And I think it's important that students understand that when they encounter someone on social who has a lot of followers, who's not a celebrity, who they haven't heard of before, you know, not to be cynical and assume that their followers are bots. No one really knows what percentage of social users are automated bot accounts. But to know that that exists and that that is a thing is important. So a lot of journalists, and you'll, you'll see this on, you know, the nightly news where they'll there'll be some big story and they'll, you know, put up some tweets that, you know, that people have responded to. I mean, there's this sort of tendency sometimes that, you know, you go to Twitter to, you know, promote your content, but sometimes, you know, there are people who use that as a, as a source, you know, what can people do to sort of weed out questionable sources, questionable uh, Twitter accounts, uh, yeah. things that might be bought? So I, I think that there are some good uh, use cases for social media, both for consumers and for journalists, actually, there are lots of examples of journalists using social media to find people on the scene of breaking news events. They need to verify that person's on the scene of a breaking news event in some way, and there are a number of ways they can do that. And that can allow them to source stories in ways that they've never been able to before, also but much faster to reach people on the scene. I remember a story here in Chicago several years ago when we had a sudden heavy snow and cars got stuck on Lakeshore Drive and city buses full of people among them. Journalists were able to actually talk to people on the buses, find people on the buses and talk to them 
you know, in the interim before they were even sort of rescued off of the highway and, and taken to safety. So that would never have been possible without social. For consumers, you know, it opens up just an unfathomably large swath of, of sources of information. And everybody has to be aware that, you know, as soon as something happens, social media is going to be filled with images and videos, some of which was taken at the scene and shared very rapidly, some of which is authentic, but also purveyors of misinformation rush into that space and begin to pollute it. So they'll take videos and photos of other incidents and claim that they are from a scene that's still unfolding in a way that's very deceptive. So for example, in the wake of the, the recent attacks in Paris, a partisan sort of British nationalist figure circulated a video of some people celebrating in London, which he said was in London. So the, his tweet with this video clip was, here are Muslims in London celebrating the attacks in Paris. Um, what in fact the, the video was, it was a clip of some folks in Pakistan celebrating a cricket victory two years before. So I think people have to be aware when you see a piece of raw video, raw feels authentic to people because it's unfiltered, it's unproduced, but it can be very deceptive. It can be very hard to know where that image or video came from. So to just view everything with skepticism and to realize that there are some, some players uh, out there that are really bent on spreading misinformation or capitalizing on tragedy or other aspects of a breaking news event to advance kind of political agenda. So to just be aware of those of those tactics. That's kind of where the tools of journalism come into play and what our what our role can be in, in instances like that, where we're certainly going to have journalists who are on the ground who are reporting back and trying to verify different sources on a breaking news event. But, you know, being very cautious about what you tweet out and what you share and, you know, checking your sources on everything, develop a, a good sense of skepticism. It's not just for consumers, but for journalists, it, it, you know, that's that's part of who we are. We have to be skeptical and questioning right. about everything we get. So if we see all of these tweets come in at some event, is this real? Who are these people? Who are these sources that we're getting from? What can we do to verify this independently? And for us, that helps us sort of clean up our stream of information. And it promotes us as a place where people can go and trust that information. So it's, it's, it's sort of a constant vigilance in you know skepticism, transparency, verifying the truth, and just putting it out there. And as you said before, if, you know, when you make a mistake, you know, yeah. admit that you made a mistake and make that correction, because that's very important to this yeah. whole thing. Because and if you don't, you know, that's what people can call you, and you're not, you're not going to be a credible source. Although, I, you know, I would caution folks, especially now in the, in the wake of the CNN retraction and, and resignations, that, you know, mistakes, obviously all news organizations, I think, that take their work seriously, and there are many, despite, you know, despite, I think, some people's frustration, all news organizations really try to, to eliminate mistakes. They don't want to have errors. But, you know, the, the practice of journalism is a, is a complex thing that is performed in less than ideal circumstances. And, you know, mistakes are going to happen for a variety of reasons, sometimes because sources and others try to mislead or manipulate or trick journalists into publishing something. There's a cautionary tale here for consumers not to think that, well, this source of information made an error, therefore I can't believe anything they do. I think people need to watch carefully what a news organization does when an error is made. You know, mistakes are inevitable. I think 
journalism, like every, everything else humans do, is imperfect by nature. And we can seek to minimize those mistakes, uh, react to mistakes by revising policies. And I think your comment about transparency is spot on. When consumers see a mistake happen, to not just look for accountability, so don't just look for the correction, that's important. But I think increasingly asking news organizations to explain how it happened, right? And I think CNN has done a good job of that with this latest scandal, but I think news organizations don't always explain well how the mistake happened and what kinds of changes they might make to policies and procedures and standards to make sure that that same mistake doesn't happen again. That's an important thing for folks to look for. Yes, it certainly is. Be skeptical, be, be transparent, be diligent, be, you know, be a, be a smart consumer of news, you know, yeah. question everything, even things that seem to support, you know, your point of view and bolster what you believe in. I think you said, said it, uh, if it's too good, too good to believe. You it know, probably is. It yeah. probably is. Yeah. As much as people being sort of overly credulous and believing everything they encounter is a problem. I also think cynicism, sort of the, the inverse of that, being unwilling to believe anything and to think that everything is some kind of product of, of some systematic agenda, which, which is a position I think is, is fairly common now. I think that's a big mistake. So I think skepticism is the right sort of healthy center point between those two unhealthy poles. So I worry very much about about cynicism and to think that, you know, there's nothing you can believe. And people who aren't willing to believe demonstrable truths when presented with evidence, I think that's incredibly disempowering personally and disruptive to democracy. So I think it's important for consumers to remember that a credible source of information actually won't ask you to trust it. It will show you why to trust a particular piece of information. So don't get hung up on, you know, you see people a lot offering up a fact check and then someone attacking that organization, that fact check organization, rather than digging into the actual fact check, looking at the methods, looking at the evidence that's presented and to say, let's evaluate the evidence. And, you know, are they actually asking us to trust this fact check because it came from Snopes or PolitiFact or factcheck.org? Or have they shown us why to trust this? And I think that's an important distinction that uh, the consumers need to keep in mind. Yes. Keep your eyes open for the distraction. Peter, thanks for coming on. This is a fascinating conversation. And really, uh, I think your organization is doing great work. And it's something that we've talked about off and on uh, for the life of the, the podcast in many different ways about how important it is to have uh, some sort of literacy, news literacy program in the schools uh, to educate people so that they become good consumers of news, so that they can uh, hold the news accountable when it needs to be held accountable, but also, you know, recognize when they're being manipulated and also telling them how they can be good purveyors of information as well. Yeah. And I think that only makes journalism better when citizens are news and media literate and are able to, to engage with news and information in a way that's, that's informed and thoughtful. It will only make journalists better at their job, which I think is good for everybody. I agree. Peter, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Michael. I enjoyed it. Next time on It's All Journalism. I think that it, that it would be crazy to expect people to remember whether they're reading Washingtonian or something else, but I want us to show how Washington works and show people how to have their best life in Washington now, and I want them to remember that the story, where, where the stories they read came from. But more than that, I just want them to remember the stories. Next week, I play one of the interviews I grabbed at this year's Association of Alternative News Media's annual conference. 
Check out my conversation with Andrew Bajan of Washingtonian Magazine. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean. Across the 10, the 5. Touchdown, Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.